Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. It takes a very special kind of entrepreneur to start a hedge fund business. Very few are able to get it off the ground. It takes an even more resilient manager to try and raise money for an investable digital asset product during a crypto winter. Adam Gurin, founder and CIO of Hunting Hill Global Capital, has that resilience. To put things broadly in perspective, new hedge fund launches in Q3 2022, when I first met Adam, were at their lowest since 2008. It's no surprise when collectively, hedge funds lost more than $200 billion in 2022. At the time, fees fell to their lowest since the financial crisis, and annual redemptions were on track to hit an all-time high. When speaking to Adam, some of his core traits become abundantly clear. His mastery of the tenets of money and risk management, and a composure one would say confidence, that comes with having competed in a high-performance sport, whether it's soccer or trading. It was evident from our first conversations that Adam has a clear understanding of how to design, implement, and risk-manage sophisticated trading strategies, and an unwavering commitment towards positioning himself for the next leg up in digital asset markets. In May of 2023, Hunting Hill Global Capital announced that its affiliate, Hunting Hill Digital, is partnering with the Investment Fund for Foundations, as an anchor to provide institutional investors with exposure to an actively managed strategy focused on the top 25 cryptocurrencies by market cap, liquidity, and performance. Adam is a seasoned fund manager, which we want to see more of in crypto markets. Before launching his first fund back in 2012, he managed a global event-driven arbitrage portfolio at First New York Securities, investing in ETF arbitrage, cross-border and merger arbitrage, corporate actions, and other special situations. In 2007, he became a partner at the age of 26, then the youngest partner in the firm's history. In 2008, based on his track record, Adam was named to Trader Monthly Magazine's Top 30 Traders Under 30 list. Adam obtained his MBA from Wharton with a focus on entrepreneurial management and holds a BA in economics from Duke University. Adam has also enjoyed success on the soccer pitch as a member of the top-ranked Duke Blue Devils varsity squad professionally for the Columbus Crew and Cleveland Force Organizations, and with the U.S. men's national team. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, in a small town. It's actually in rural Ohio, in a town called Huntsburg. And I grew up on a farm. And you know, it was my family, which is, I have an older sister, younger brother, and my parents. And it was a family farm, about 100 acres, you know, pretty rural and unique. For sure. I was there until I was about 12 years old and then you know, moved towards Cleveland and suburbs near the big city at the time when I was about 12 years old. So I think for me, a happy time when I was growing up living on the farm and it was a unique experience for sure. So when you were growing up, did you have any inkling as to what you would end up wanting to do later in life? Did you exhibit any sort of initiatives or maybe an entrepreneurial bent at the time? I mean, you know, I always refer to, I know it's a little corny, you know, the lemonade stand. And believe it or not, actually, some guests actually did that as children. They sold lemonade. But you know what I'm saying? It's more, were there any sort of tendencies at the time or did this manifest later in life? You know, I think a little bit of both. I think when I was younger, I went to a Montessori school and for those that don't know it, it's a relatively progressive education. And, and I think that one of the key attributes that I learned from coming out of that school was to be 
open to learning new things. So almost like to learning to learn throughout life. And I think that's a pretty important aspect of being an entrepreneur, being someone that wants to adjust and change to different markets and different aspects of life. And additionally, I had some called family history in entrepreneurship. My grandfather started an insurance company, which my uncle had taken over. And so when I was growing up, that was just part of my family history of starting businesses. And what's interesting about the insurance business in particular is beyond the selling of insurance, there's a big heavy portion of portfolio management. So if you have a bunch of liabilities or potential liabilities for paying out uh, claims, you have obviously premiums that come in, you have to manage the cash flow, you have to manage the balance sheet and, and the risk. And so I think growing up, there was also a component of learning, learning that about my family and the family business. So those two things sort of combine into, for me at least, an entrepreneurial type of personality that is looking to you know, manage risk, manage a portfolio, and try to do the right thing for investors and stakeholders that are at play. Was there a sense of drawing from what you just said? What was your exposure overall to, I'd say, financial acumen? and the skill of understanding things of money, right? How money grows, how you can lose it, so understand risk return. I'm asking this because I think in some families, it's ingrained from the start under the premise or under the assumption that there is some of that understanding, be it professional, academic, or just common sense. And I think in other families, it may not be par for the course. And I do think that as you enter the workforce and just the real world, you're definitely going to be at a disadvantage if you don't understand, as I like to label them, the things of money or like how money works. I'll say this from a personal experience. I came from an engineering family, a lineage of engineers, but it always struck me that the engineering mindset was really never really applied, nor was it part of conversations was money or economics or markets or just the lingo, but also the thinking and was never a part of the dinner table conversation or any conversation for the most. So I gravitated towards econ and finance as the first person in my family to choose that path other than engineering school to continue studying math or physics because of that, because I felt a need to further my understanding, but also I happen to have a natural talent at math and I saw that I could apply to economics and finance. Yeah. So it's a great question. I think that from you know my perspective, my family, because of the family business and the nature of it, it was a bit ingrained in our generation and the generation after ours that it's important to be a steward of capital for not just the family, but there's a couple of different family foundations that I'm a part of, and there's other members of my family that are a big part of. And so the process of joining that family foundation is really understanding, you know, what the family business is, where some of the wealth had come from, how to be, like I said, stewards of that capital. And I think that translates, at least for me, you know, professionally is to be a good fiduciary and understand what that means for not just our investors, but employees and folks that are involved in the company as stakeholders. And so, yeah, I think very early on in my upbringing, as well as 
sort of formative years in high school and college. That was a pretty healthy part of my understanding about money, where money comes from, how it's used, how it's compounded, how it can be invested, how to manage risk. All of those things were the foundation, I guess, for me on launching my own business and kind of continuing through my career as it's been. Makes sense. It makes total sense. So what kind of studies did you find yourself gravitating towards as you sort of, where were your interests, let's say, in your teen years? What did you find yourself gravitating towards both academically and on the extracurricular side of things? Yeah. So in my teen years, I had a lot of focus or spent a lot of time playing soccer. You know, I was a pretty athletic kid. I was also a middle child, as I mentioned. And having been the middle child, I was always seeking attention, so to speak. And so, you know, I pushed pretty hard playing soccer and I peaked at the right time, so to speak. I was not very good when I was young. I was playing YMCA rec league soccer until I was probably nine or 10 and then was doing like town travel leagues until I was probably 13. And started to play for one of the travel, like more premier travel teams when I was 13. And I was fortunate enough to have a coach, a guy named Ali Kazamani, who's a super sharp guy and played professionally. And he kind of took me under his wing. I was like, you can be good if you want. And I really pushed hard when I was 14 and 15. And when I was, I guess I was 16 and 17 years old when I made the national team, the under 18s. And you know, it was a big step for me, a big milestone. You know, like I said, I wasn't very good when I was younger, and I, I really put that as a goal and I made it happen. And I was obviously still working hard at school, but I was a lot of my focus was to try to get to that peak in soccer, which I did. And you know, that was a big springboard, so to speak, into college. I was recruited to play for different, you know, different schools, and ultimately ended up going to Duke. And Duke was obviously a great school for academics. They also had a very good soccer team, and they still do. And so at Duke, I really enjoyed my academic career there because I quickly realized that you know soccer was going to be a difficult path from a professional perspective. So I studied economics and sociology. And so like back then, you know, there wasn't really a behavioral finance course or behavioral finance focus, and that was what I was really trying to spend my time at school, you know, studying. And so I kind of made my own version of that studying economics and sociology, where I was understanding behaviors and behaviors of people and how it might relate to finance. And that really piqued my interest coming out of school into trading and what people do and how they react to different market and market atmospheres, in particular bubbles. That was a particular area of focus for me where I really wanted to understand bubbles in markets and the history of them and how they act and you know different atmospheres and different cultures. So it was I got a great call foundation again from going to school and being in the right place where Duke now eventually has created a behavioral finance major. It wasn't there when I was there, but it's, it's there now. And so clearly they had the ability to do it. And yeah, I continued to play soccer while I was there, which I fully enjoyed. I had a great time, but my focus into a career in finance. What do you think those years as an athlete brought to you? One of the things that I observed over time is the set of translatable skills into the workforce. I'll say an ability for, look, without going all the way to the top tier echelon of sports, but really an ability to deliver under pressure, right? When the going gets tough or 
you might be challenged in your personal life, going through a rough patch, the ability to block that out or block that out if you're in a situation where you need to perform. And I think there's the concept of choking, really. It's a well-known term in sports and in business. Those are some of my takeaways from what transcends sort of the athletic mindset into or permeates into the professional realm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but just generally, for me at least, the traits and characteristics that I got out of playing for such a long time at a high level was resilience. So you know, you got to be able to bounce back from either losing a game or failing to make a team or you know not just just not playing well on a day. And I think a super important trait for an entrepreneur or for anyone that's into the finance world, in particular for me at a risk seat persistence is another one. So constantly focusing on a goal and spending every day to take a step forward towards that goal. And even if there's headwinds to just keep taking those steps, I think that's another really important aspect, not just for trading, but just kind of career and life in general, which I took away. And, you know, I think the other, I guess, interesting thing about sports or playing them at a high level is being able to singularly focus on a task. So almost like you said, you have to black out or, or box out distractions, things that might you know get in the way. And that can be in your personal life, it can be professionally or just outside noise. And being able to focus on a singular task or a singular goal with all that going on around you. I got really good at that when I was playing. And I think I have some kind of quick examples, but I think that's something that I've taken away from sports and apply that to my career and being able to really hunker down when things get tough and focus on that goal. No, that's very helpful. And for listeners, I think the reason I emphasize on this is there's good lessons and elements to draw from that. To your point earlier, Kobe Bryant said it the best. He said, whether you win or lose on any given game day, the next day, you're going to have to pick yourself up, go back to training and keep at it. And it's the same grind, right? And so a lot of it is just in your head, right? You might feel elated when you're just coming off a win. You might feel a little bit down if you haven't hit that milestone or you didn't clinch that win. But it doesn't really matter because if you're in it to make it and you're in it for the long run, you just got to keep at it, right? So the ability to do this day in, day out. I don't know, as far as I'm concerned, one of the things I've always marveled at my ability to if you end a day with like an incredibly complex situation, an upset, as we all face as we're building businesses, setting up businesses, it might be a personnel issue, it might be business deal gone wrong, it might be something going on in the market that's playing against you. It'd be the ability to wake up the next morning and say, I've got this, there's a way out. And I don't know where that comes from. I know I've always had it. Like things can look very dire in the evening. That's why I always say also recommendation 101 to anyone listening, don't send important emails late at night unless you really have to. Don't make important decisions. Sleep on it. There's a reason why there's an expression that says sleep on it. So you're Duke, you graduate. What is your foray on on Wall Street? And like, how do you become a trader? Yeah. So, I mean, I in college, I started to dabble in the options market, mostly because Again, from the sort of family history on understanding risk and trying to manage risk, options were something that I studied in the undergrad, just derivatives markets generally. And 
I was really small amount of money, just trying to better understand how execution works, how PL works, what are interesting, you call it professional strategies. And I was actually drafted coming out of school to play soccer. And at the time, I was like, I have to do this. Like, I, you know, I, I wanted to pursue my career in finance, but I couldn't pass up the idea or a chance to play professional soccer. I mean, it's very unique. So, you know, I was drafted. I played, you know, a season for the Cleveland Force, which was a minor league team. And I was also on the, the Columbus crew. You know, I had a chance to play with them on the practice squad and had a bunch of great players that I'd grown up actually watching on that team, which was pretty unique experience. And so I enjoyed myself. I played for two seasons but quickly realized I was just born in the wrong country to be playing professional soccer. So I had done an internship at Citigroup while I was playing and that was post-school and I you know, was just on the sales desk there and just kind of learned how you know, the bank worked and how client side worked and what was the process and what people focused on and kind of routines that were there. And you know, I really wanted to get into trading, and I ended up doing an unpaid internship after uh, Citigroup at a, a startup hedge fund uh, called Birch Bay. And the hedge fund was an it's an options overlay strategy, and it's just a unique experience because it was a startup, so I was learning kind of how to handle that process and sort of the steps that it took to get there. And I was also learning about the options market at a very sophisticated level, and so it was a I did whatever I could to just get my foot in the door and working unpaid was the way to go. I was still playing. At that point, actually, I was still playing semi-pro. I played in a team in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Knights. So I was sort of kind of half in, half out. And then once that internship was over, I started working at a proprietary trading company. I had a few offers to work in Chicago and some in New York. And I ultimately went to a place called First New York, which was a very entrepreneurial place. You know, it was a very flat organization. I started in the assistant trading program and basically was getting people coffee and just reading research reports at 6 a.m. To, to show some face and fortunate enough to learn from a lot of senior people at that place. And it really kind of kickstarted my entrepreneurial spirit and you know, learned a lot while I was there, not just how to manage risk, but you know, how to manage people and and sort of really get a better understanding on how Wall Street functions from the inside. So in terms of honing your skills, it sounds like you were exposed to pretty complex instruments from the get-go, if I'm correct. And as a former options trader myself, I can relate. I feel like it's easier to go downstream from complexity into none than it is going the other way around. The other thing that's interesting with derivatives is and it's even more prevalent today in markets, the tail that wags the dog. Most market participants and investors on some level, although it's less relevant at the frequency of deployment or withdrawal of capital if you're an investor, but certainly if you're a trader, the impact of the derivative market and flows and positioning of both sides of the equation, dealer sell side versus buy side, is very, very important and affects the way prices move. When did you start really grasping those concepts? And also, what I'm curious is, how did you start developing insights that potentially you put to work later on in your career? Was it occurring at that time, or was it purely like grinding it out, learning the instruments, learning the terms, just getting acquainted? Or were there like little nuggets here and there where you're like, hmm, interesting, I think I could exploit this, or if I had X, Y, and Z, 
I could potentially make money doing this? Yeah. So, you know, just maybe starting with that first part, which is on the derivative side, I had, when I landed at First New York, I pushed hard to join, at the time, what was called the International Desk, which really meant kind of anything goes globally. And a lot of the main focus there was on trades in ADRs or American Depository Receipts, which is essentially a derivative of an underlying or common stock that is non-US. So for example, Sony can trade here in the US and then obviously the common stock is trading in Japan or British Petroleum, same thing. You're in the US, there's a ADR and then common stock trades in London. So that was like one of the first trades that I had learned and it was understanding to your point how a derivative will act or trade relative to its underlying. And in the US, ADRs would kind of trade on its own and that would cause dislocations and it would happen because of fund flows or different buyers and sellers or lack of liquidity or lack of balance sheet with market makers and liquidity. And so it's a really kind of quick and easy way to understand how to see what fair price is in a derivative and when it gets off that fair price, whether it's too rich or too dear or too cheap, then it's worth buying if it's too cheap and selling if it's too rich. And so there was a lot of model-driven, uh, I call it statistical type of trading, I picked up early on to try to find out what fair value was and calculate how far away we thought the, or I thought the instrument was away from fair value. So that process, you can really apply to almost any derivative, so long as you understand how to model and how to better understand who the players are and what exactly is pushing the derivative around. So, you know, back then, the ADRs were still trading on the New York Stock Exchange floor, and then we were picking up the phone and using a turret to call the floor and see where the flows are and who's buying, who's selling, and how can we be involved. Um, nowadays, it's obviously very much an electronic game, but the model fair pricing or fair value pricing still exists. And it can be applied to any derivative or sort of any complex type of pricing model. And that's, I guess, where my foundation sat and learned. And I learned over time how to apply you know, that type of trading to different derivatives. So I got into ETFs uh, very early on in 2005 and 2006, which was is really a derivative of an underlying basket, and then started to trade futures and sort of other instruments. And had some really good success doing that. So just kind of copying and pasting that process of understanding fair values and trading where I thought there was some complexity premium that I could figure out and potentially the market wasn't really seen. Makes total sense. Now, could you just briefly, if we're elaborating a little bit on the technicalities, and this is fun because I don't always do this, but since this is my world as well, yeah. when you think about risk management in essentially what is a convergence trade, right? You're establishing ex ante that the market is not reflecting fair value in the relationship between an underlying and its derivative, right, at the core. And you also say, for listeners, it's also helpful that these things tend to occur or appear, these anomalies, when people can't necessarily access markets in the most efficient way. There are frictions, there are liquidity constraints, there are market open and close times. There is an inability to move capital from one location to another, one jurisdiction to another. And so these create dislocations, right? To your point about ADRs, they trade US time. And so they should be reflecting some 
manifestation of how investors view the price of that asset during U.S. market hours. But let's say if it's a Japanese stock, the bulk of the investors are going to be inactive or asleep at the time. So knowing this, and we've seen examples here where if you look at GBTC, for example, and it's a slightly different problem, but you do have an underlying and you do have a derivative instrument or a fund that's trading at a deep discount, right? And that discount can really, really widen against you, right? Yep. You are making a bet towards mean reversion. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is how did you think about risk management in the context of these convergence trades? And how do you position yourself uh, to avoid the convergence actually going against you? Yeah. So there's a handful of different factors here. I think the first one, which is the probably most important to understand is whether or not there is forced convergence or it is technically basis trade in our definition, which means there's no uh, mechanism to force two instruments or two securities to to tether together. So in a situation where there's forced convergence, those spreads, meaning one is fungible with the other, those spreads can tighten relatively quickly, and they generally are not super wide. However, there can be exceptions, right? So there can be exceptions because there is a time risk, so to speak. So yes, there's forced convergence between two instruments, but it may take days for that to happen. And that could be an operational process, or that could be because there's some sort of market structure issue with, let's say, for example, an ETF or a closed end fund. And then because there is time risk, either that that could be days or weeks or months, then there can also be balance sheet risk. So in other words, in order to put the trade on, one could be buying something they have to post capital for it. And then one could also be selling a similar or same instrument would have to post capital on that other side or other leg. And if you can't hold the trade for as long as it needs to, maybe it's, let's say, six months because you've run out of capital, then that's a problem. Because even though it will force converge, you just don't have the ability to stay solvent for that six months. And we've seen that in different cases in ETFs and closed-end funds and actually in GBTC. But in cases where there's no force convergence, where there's potentially a soft catalyst for something to close, which I'd argue GBTC fits under that category, then it is purely, from my perspective, a risk management process or approach, meaning we have to understand what the potential risk is for the spread to continue to widen. And if it continues to widen, what's the worst case scenario that we think it could get? So we run the scenario analysis and GBTC is complex. It's the investment trust with Bitcoin as the underlier. There's obviously this potential for it to be converted to an ETF at some point. And that product, it could widen out to 40% discount, 50% discount. We don't know if it could get any wider. It hasn't. But if we model that out and say, look, the worst it could get to is 45% then we need to better understand how much we're willing to lose based off of that model. And if we have a mandate, especially in one of our strategies to lose no more than, let's say, 5% in one position, we can model it out and determine how to size accordingly. So we kind of work backwards with a sizing exercise, and then we trade from there. So uh, so long as we can get comfortable with, with the risk that we have on based on the models and scenario analysis that we run, that gives us the I guess, ability to sleep at night, to manage something like GBTC, which has a soft catalyst and really has that basis risk or that sort of spread risk. That is very, very helpful. And clearly, we could see how you think and decompose 
all these different aspects. And I think, again, it's helpful for investors or, or listeners. So when do you strike on your own? When do you get to the point where you feel you've got enough expertise and experience, and I would say track record, in order to step into the arena as a financial or a fund manager entrepreneur? Yeah. So like I said, I was fortunate enough to learn at a proprietary trading shop that was very entrepreneurial in the sense that I obviously learned on the ADR desk. When I learned about ETFs in 2005, I brought it up with my boss, who was a partner of the firm at the time, and just said, hey, you know, this ETF trade, which the first one I looked at was EWJ, which is the iShares Japan product that has a handful of different underliers that are based in Tokyo and, and on the Nikkei and topics. And he said, yeah, that trade looks similar to ADRs, but ETFs are going to be fad, like it'll die out. You can go ahead and do as much as you want. So I was like, okay, great. So I started trading ETFs. And at the time, EWJ was trading less volume than Toyota Motors, which was an ADR that is also you know, here in the US. And, and now it's one of the largest, most liquid ETF products in the US or globally. And so clearly it wasn't a fad and I grew that part of the business or, or portfolio, so to speak, over the years. And there were more products that were coming out in 2006, 2007, which were credit products and vol products and levered products on different indexes. And there's just a lot of new, new trades and new ways to capture spread or provide liquidity to these products, understand what fair values were and how they traded what the underliers traded, had to learn more about vol, had to learn more about commodities because there were new products on those underliers. And in 2008, I had a pretty good year. You know, obviously, the world was in a really nasty place financially, but there was a lot of opportunity in a lot of the things that I was doing. And I felt like there was some scale. And it really wasn't within the business model of the firm that I was at. Even though I was a partner of the firm and running a pretty large balance sheet, as it goes, at least for the firm's case, they said, look, we don't provide any more balance sheet, but you can start a hedge fund externally to raise some outside capital if you want to continue to scale. So that was the sort of process that had me spinning out, so to speak, of the firm. I had raised some friends and family capital, and I was fortunate enough to get my track record out of that firm, and which is unique. And it was a great time, I think, for me to try it. I was young at the time. I did that when I was in my 20s. In hindsight, maybe you should have waited a little longer just to better understand you know, the managing of the business side of things. But I learned by doing. And I, like I said, that was very much a part of my upbringing and my education. Montessori was just kind of learning by doing and learning by reading and speaking to folks and try to understand how to do things on my own. And I went to business school. I went to Wharton in 2010 to try to better understand entrepreneurship, which is what I studied and did take a few finance courses. But I felt like I had that part, part down <laughs> pretty well in practice. And so yeah, I launched Hunting Hill in 2012 after business school and I had my track record. I had a handful of different strategies that I felt comfortable running on my own. You know, I felt like I knew how to manage risk in a pretty volatile time. I lived and survived a pretty large financial bubble and burst through 2007 and 8 and 9 and I wanted to try to strike out on my own and cut my teeth as best I could when I launched in 2012. So, yeah, I mean it was a bit of a process coming out of out of first New York and launching, but I felt like it was a unique time to do it. Well, that's what I'd love to focus on because it's so incredible to be able to pull this off. And also, I want others to learn not only how to do it, but how hard it is. So it sounds like you didn't have any co-founders, right? You didn't, you didn't have anyone really equal partner or 
a right-hand person. It was pretty much you. Did you have any suitable mentors or advisors at the time? You know, I know, again, like you could, friends and families who were backing you, presumably. But what about sort of day in, day out, like having a sounding board, like someone who's navigated this before or not, but could be there through the ups and downs of starting the business? Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate because I had you know, stayed in touch with the founder of Perch Bay. It's a guy named Kurt Brockelman who, who gave me my first opportunity, unpaid internship at his startup ball shop. And so he was a silent partner in the business, an advisor for me and always been a mentor to me and continues to be. And so I was, I was very lucky to have him as someone to bounce ideas off of and really how to better understand to, you know, how to launch a business and do it from scratch which on hindsight, I didn't, I don't think I fully appreciated what I was signing up for. It's almost like starting a bank from scratch, but I did have him and I had support from my old shop. I did have a lot of good contacts from partners of the firm that supported me and were investors early on. And that's not just a good sign of confidence, but also it was allowing me to just pick up the phone and ask folks like, how do you deal with this? So I did get a clear call market called Signal. So from when I launched, I had obviously spoken to a lot of institutional investors and tried to better understand, is it possible to get an early investment? And a lot of the feedback I got was, we, we love this idea. We like you and we want to invest and just see how, how things go. And so call us after two years of a track record. And I was like, wow, okay, so I got to prove myself. You know, I have my track record from my old shop, but I had to prove myself that I can do it on my own, because a lot of the pushback I got was, these are great numbers. How do I know I wasn't, you, Adam, weren't just sitting next to the Stevie Cohen of First New York and copying all of his trades? And as much as I could tell people that wasn't the case, I couldn't prove it until I was out of the, out on my own. And, and so I had a, a pretty good run for a couple of years, and, and that allowed me to get in front of institutional investors and ultimately partner with a guy named Sonny Dozier who came on board to help us raise capital in 2014 and 2015. And, you know, he ended up being another big part of Hunting Hill and continues to be and, you know, a great partner, a great sounding board, as he said, and someone that I relied on heavily to take the front to the next level. Yeah, this is super helpful. And it points to the issue that the chicken and egg problem of fun entrepreneurship that I think very few people grasp or realize is I'm assuming the friends and family commitment was not gigantic, but to the average person it was probably a significant amount of money. So there is, to begin with, having to start with something, right? Because if you're going to start generating, because another question that might happen down or might be raised down the road, they might say, well, we want to look at two years of track record. And then they might say, well, you were really running it on a few million dollars. I don't know if it works on a larger scale. Are there capacity issues? How does the liquidity in those assets actually affect your ability to generate alpha? So it is very, I wouldn't say it's complex. It's just you need a break at some point, right? I mean, that's the only way I personally have looked at it is that at some point, someone needs to take a chance on you. Someone needs to look at it and say, you know what? It's risky. This is new. But whether I've worked with Adam before or in my interactions with him, I feel like he's got his act together. He's making a good case. 
I think the story of entrepreneurship in general is one where I think what makes the, the difference ultimately is your ability to convince people outside of the track record, right? It's saying, I've got an idea. This is how I think it's going to play out. I'm going to work my tail off to make it happen. Do you want in or out? Now, in exchange for that, people are going to want to extract their pound of flesh. And that's fair game. That's fair game. But you need someone to step in and not follow the process. Because by the time you follow the process of saying, well, you've got three years of track record and it's going to go up the operational due diligence process, go up to the investment committee at the institution, like everyone could do that. Right. I mean, it's due process at that time. Right. Everyone can look at the same set of numbers. It's just it then it boils down to deal flow and having access to your deal. Right. As opposed to another deal. But in the very beginnings, anything you do, it's a startup, a venture fund, a private equity fund, a hedge fund. Someone's got to give you that break. And it's something that I don't think is made clear enough. And I think it's going to test anyone's ability to to sell, to put yourself out there outside of your comfort zone, because you need something a little bit out of the ordinary to occur, right? Yeah. It's easier if it's someone that you've worked with before and they're like, yeah, well, I'll take a shot on this person. But more often than not, it's other people who saying, I like the idea. I like to invest in this space. And then the other thing that should be emphasized is early stage emerging managers, whilst there's a wide dispersion of outcomes, those that do well outperform by a wide margin. Right, because you're hungry, because you're trying to prove yourself, and you have to, right? Because the fundraising is conditional on your ability to pull that off. So you talk about the objections to raising capital at the time, in terms of fund formation and just documentation governance. Was it a big part of your thinking at the time? Were there things that you did right at the time that you're thankful for having done? Or did you make a few mistakes along the way in terms of how you set things up and had to correct or not? Like, what, what was the process there? Yeah, I guess I think for me, it was the right process because I had started with a small amount of capital. It was just friends and family money and support from my old firm. And then kind of studying and learning about entrepreneurship is like, you got to keep things super lean. You can't overspend. You can't assume that the dollars are just going to come in. You can't build it and hope they come. And you got to take what the market gives you, so to speak, and and stay lean until you can grow. So what that meant for me is I learned how to do everything from scratch. So I not just from the trading perspective, I felt like I had that. That part was the easiest part. It was structuring, handling lawyers, signing up administrators, dealing with audits, going through the whole business. And I was hands-on with that part for the first three years. So I had a very good understanding of how things worked, how they were set up, why they were the way they were. I obviously made mistakes along the way and learned from those mistakes. But what that allowed me to do is you know, better understand the business as a whole and also how the trades, specifically in the trades that I was doing, how they function in an, an operational sense. So we talked earlier about how some of these trades that are forced convergence even have balance sheet issues and could cause problems for a fund that just doesn't have enough capital. And I, coming from a prop desk, there really was not a lot of conversation about margin or how trades were financed other than I knew that I was getting charged for interest. I didn't know how they function in full. And meaning that there was always balance sheet there. I always had it because I was one of 250 other 
traders. So it wasn't like I was eating up a ton of balance sheet relative to somebody else or the rest of the firm. But it, when you're looking at a, just a single firm and single structure, you got to fully understand how much capital you have and how margin works and what the operations do in order for there to be cash to free up over time. And that was just one of the many things that I learned about. And it is super important. We really talked about crypto yet or digital assets, but that's a big part of managing the risk in those types of trades is understanding the margin and balance sheet, the operational risk, you know, how things function from a market structure perspective. And I learned that I could have only learned that I think starting a business like this from scratch, because if you have, look, I would have loved to launch with a billion dollars and had a full team to manage all of that. But I don't know that I would have fully appreciated the ins and outs of how operations work and margin and treasury without doing it from scratch. Oh, that's very helpful. I can't tell you how many sell side traders run very, very, very big books are unable to actually explain what the denominator is. Right. Right. I mean, it's incredible, right? It's like, okay, well, you made like in some years, they'll make 25, 50 bucks on a billion dollar balance sheet. The next year, they might make the same amount on 500 million, right? Which is, as you and I know, like, and I'm using an incredibly oversimplified example, but many, and, and that's why you see it's actually, it's not common to see a really good, seamless, smooth translation from seasoned experience on the sell side to the buy side for that reason, right? It sounds obvious, right? But there's, you see the headlines of sell side traders making the move and then going back to the sell side, because there's something about sitting in that seat, not really having to worry too much, right? You get a report at the end of the day, you sort of know where your costs are. You start to optimizing around that and risk, right? Yeah, risk is also there. But ultimately, you've got an overarching structure that's looking at you and making sure you're not going to step out of, out of bounds from a liquidity or risk management standpoint. When you're running your own shop, you got to do all that, right? I mean, ultimately, the buck stops with you. You might hire, you're going to hire a risk manager, you might have an internal treasury function, but it's very, very important. So let's switch forward a little bit. Talk to me how you ended up getting into crypto in the first place, because I want to understand the process and then dive into how you go about monetizing the asset class. In other words, like your investment process. So I want to understand first, like, where did it start? Where did it originate? What's the thesis there? And then what is the investment process? And also like just the philosophy, like even before the process, the philosophy, and then drill down into that. Yeah. So as we sort of briefly talked about, I mean, I'd gotten into the crypto space and, and other digital asset type of trades through our ETF and closed end fund strategy. So we I had looked at GBTC back in 2016. That was the first time we got involved in the space. You know, I didn't really know much about Bitcoin other than my cousin brought it up in 2012 saying like, you should take a look at this thing, which I did. But in 16 and from a professional level, that was the first time we really dove into it. And GBTC, which is a, the Grayscale Investment Trust, that product at the time was trading at a premium to spot. And you know, it's a Delaware grantor trust. It's pretty tricky from a governance perspective. There wasn't a lot of protections from an investor side. So we took a hard look at it. And at that time, there was a lockup of 12 months in order for someone who wanted to create, which would be done at NAV, to then receive their shares in the secondary market to sell, which is a pretty long time to wait, especially in crypto terms. 12 months can 
lot of different <laughs> outcomes uh, given the volatility of the underlying. So our first trade was relatively small, like very small, to just understand the mechanics of the trade, how the creation worked. And then from there, we needed to figure out how to hedge. So if we were long GBTC at NAV, how do we hedge so that we're not taking spot risk and we're only taking the risk of the premium? And back in 2016 and 17, there really wasn't many vehicles or ways to do that. There was not really a lending market for spot. And we also didn't have LP comfort to trade the coin itself. So if we wanted to get short, we had to do it through some derivative product. So we looked for futures. And ultimately, what we did is we were shorting an ETN out in Sweden, which is a coin shares product, to get our exposure. So we were short this ETN, which had Bitcoin as the underlier and long GBTC nav. And that, get, that allowed us to keep our neutral exposure, so to speak, keep our neutral thesis and get exposure to that premium. So we got comfortable with the trade and started to do it that way. But over time, you know, we wanted to be more efficient with capital because being long GBTC at NAV meant you had to post cash and being short meant you, uh, meant you also had to post cash and it was 100% cash for both sides. So it's very expensive from a cost of capital perspective to do the trade. So we, over time, we're trying to find ways to be more efficient with capital, with loans, with different counterparties and platforms that would allow us to, to put that trade on. And from a high level, what we were looking to obviously accomplish here is capture the complexity premium. We feel like that's one of our edges in, in the business. We can understand difficult and complex market structure trades and dive into them and really solve how to be most efficient and manage risk with the capital that we have. And on a go-forward basis, that continues. I mean, we're on a, I don't want to push too far forward, but we're in a totally different part of the cycle at this point. And you know, we are still looking for complexity premium type trades. And that's somewhat in investment trusts and closed end funds, but it's also in liquid digital assets. It's also in distressed. So we are applying our skills and trying to look at fair values and where things might be mispriced in the market. And those are really the three places that we've been focused on. So in terms of the actual process by which you execute, can you describe a little bit the other thing I'm trying to get a sense of is how much of an investment have you made? Some funds really border on on being a technology company, really, right? That happens to trade financial markets or financial instruments. That's the, the business, but it's essentially a technology company. Workflows have been automated. You have research infrastructure all the way from data pipeline designs to model implementation execution can be or not manual or automated. You might have risk management triggers that will go and self-execute in the market, which is helpful in a 24-7 asset class. What is your philosophy towards this? And I guess it ties also into the human capital element of your business and how you've designed it over time. Yeah, I mean, we have done our best to automate as many as many models as we can and trade in that way. But we are, to be clear, we're not a quant shop. We're not a black box. So there are not, there are not any computers that are trading on behalf of a model. We have full discretion. There's a human touch element there that has full discretion so that we have signals and different processes that would tell us that we need to trade or should trade based on some model, but we are ultimately making that decision and executing. So there is a handful of you know, different processes that are automated and we're able to to work through them, but ultimately it's a human making that decision. So 
we kind of got as far as we can up until that point. You know, that said, we do believe that there is a plenty of room for good technology as potential service in the crypto space and blockchain in particular for institutional investors. We have made investments in the space and are looking for ways to solve some of the pain points that we have as risk takers in the space on an institutional level. So, you know, those investments are pretty happy about and excited for the teams that we've invested in and do think that, you know, having that type of technology to push the ball forward is is not just good for us, it's good for the space. And I do think that there are more players out there that are looking for that institutional technology that will help automate and get things done more efficiently. How much do you and your team need to know about the inner workings of the then and future developments in blockchain in order for your investment business to stay relevant, to stay on that bleeding edge of its understanding of where it's going? I mean, it's a highly uncertain outcome and a highly speculative area to be invested in. We've talked a lot about what you and I know to be, of course, with your own secret sauce applied to it, but the more traditional view to look at any sort of financial instruments, you look at behavioral aspects that tie to you know different participants' incentive functions and their constraints, whether it be liquidity, being time zones, you're referring to geographical arbitrage and ADRs, structural issues that can be exploited. But that's trading and exploiting anomalies 101. There is an element of uncertainty as to how some people don't even refer to crypto as an asset class, right? And their argument at times can hold true, right? What are we really looking at? And are the instruments being traded today? I'd say Bitcoin is probably here to stay. That's one where there's a lot of certainty around it, especially considering the institutional appetite for it, at least for the foreseeable future. But there is an overall debate around, are we just going to be trading stocks and derivatives and bonds in tokenized form 10 years from now? Or will there be new types of assets, right? And, you know, we're, we're getting into like what the definition of those assets are, right? Yeah. So I know it's a broad question, but it's an important one. Love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think for us... We believe that the next cycle or next bull market for the space is not going to look like the last one. And if we unpack that a little bit, what that, or at least what we believe that means is that there will be more practical use cases where blockchain technology and other digital assets are used in sort of everyday life, not just in the US, but globally. And so, you know, our thesis has been to search for those companies and those opportunities that reflect that thesis, that there will be practical use cases and how do we invest based off of that thought. And so we have drilled that down into three different areas. And what we're, again, I think one of the characteristics we can hold our head high on is complexity premiums. So right now in a cycle where there's a lot of distressed assets in the space, how do we invest in those types of assets and different projects where we think there's practical use cases on the other side? So like you said, in five to 10 years, you know, what's the financial market going to look like? And what are just basic day-to-day life going to look like? Is blockchain going to be part of people's lives or is it not? And if it is, how is it going to look? 
And so we've kind of put that thesis into three different pillars. One is to buy and purchase and look at different distressed assets. A second is to look at liquid and figure out ways to get exposure to liquid tokens that we think reflect that thesis of practical use cases. And then the third is, you know, we launched Hunting Hill Digital, which is a company that focuses on consumer brands and servicing consumer brands in their loyalty programs and NFTs. And we believe that a lot of the companies that are out there are looking for ways to utilize blockchain technology. And the foundation of using that kind of looks like an investment management role. Those companies need to better understand custody. They need to understand price. They need to understand what the regulations and different compliance issues might be. They need to understand what kind of layer one, layer two they would need to use for their different programs and what they're looking to do. And so we feel like we have a pretty good edge in that service and really excited about digital launching. And as I mentioned, Sunny Dozier, who joined us in 2014, 2015, is my partner, is the CEO of that company. And those three pillars are the way that we're approaching it. And we, we do think that there's going to be some really exciting use cases out there that will change people's lives and make a positive impact. Yeah. And to your point about there being similarities with, with the asset management business, we're definitely in a world, and we, if we go back to the concept of the ownership economy, which I think is pretty central to the thesis of what blockchain really means, it's, I was talking about it earlier, where you think about Web3 domain names, right? Yep. And how in the Web3 ownership framework, it's a very different value proposition than it would otherwise be in Web2, right? If you own a domain name, well, sure, you could rent that domain name. You could enter a transaction over the counter, right? There really isn't a composable, highly functional approach to putting your assets. Where, like, let's just say you're sitting on 100 domain names in Web2. Like, yes, you can hire a law firm, find counterparties that are interested in renting that IP, structure it in a certain way. It's, it's very bespoke, right? We're entering in a world where you could be sitting on 100 Web3 domain names, put them to work through some primitive or protocol, earn some yield, right? Rent them, have incredible traceability mechanism, a lot of transparency, and really benefit from putting your assets to work, right? So in essence, everyone is moving into this world where you own and control some assets. You can delegate that. There'll be delegation processes by which you do this, but it's turning a lot of concepts on their heads in a highly productive manner, I think. The other thing I'll say is there will be externalities too, right? Companies that are not in the space necessarily, like don't necessarily have a token outstanding and whether tokens do survive or not, or in what form, TBD. I know we've got some challenges there, especially stateside. But you know, the externalities are, look at how Adobe has done over the years and really harnessing new waves of business growth coming from other industries suddenly needing this. Look at how NVIDIA is doing right now, really benefiting from AI and being very, very central to that. So I think there'll be, even from an equity investment, both on the private and public side, externalities that can be captured as this seeps into the mainstream. And, and it will. Real, there's big players, very smart people currently working on bringing this technology into the mainstream for its use. And there are some real use cases. The ownership economy is a real thing, right? The ability for people to participate in ways that they haven't been able to before is, is a real thing. Yeah, no, 100%. And I guess 
we're trying to, on our side, use the dollars that we have in the most impactful way. And we do think that there's a similar process there and potential outcome with consumer brands and the ownership economy is applied there and how people can you know, really engage with a brand in a different way, which would include blockchain technology and wearables and digitizing everything. So yeah, we are excited about that process. We do think that's the next catalyst and driver of the bull market that's hopefully potentially comes. Now, another question that I have, which is more of a, an implementation one, going back to your various investment vehicles, what as a seasoned trader who's obviously had to pay attention very closely to market microstructure and, and liquidity, what is the current state of market microstructure and trade execution in the instruments you trade? Does it really matter as much given the types of strategies you're implementing? We've lost a lot of participants. We've lost many different players. I get a sense from talking to your peers in the market that there's been a sea of change and the market looks very different from what it looked like a year and a half ago. Yeah, I guess there's certainly a lack of real deep liquidity in certain instruments and that kind of cuts both ways, right? So in a market that is drifting higher, there's just a lack of offers for people to lift, right? So if there's a lot of buyers out there, it just pushes the market higher faster, but it can be the same in reverse. If there's some bad news or other things that are causing things to move down without a lot of liquidity and not a lot of bids, I think that's started to come back, honestly, a little bit in the last few weeks with the BlackRock news and filing the ETF with this XRP, Ripple, SEC case, which you could argue either way who won. But to be honest, in my opinion, it's just a clearing event, which helps the market get some clarity on what what is what. So there has been some liquidity that's come back into the space. And maybe the other thing to say, which is different than maybe a year and a half ago, is the leverage in the system. You know, there's just not a lot of leverage there in the digital asset space. There's, there's not a lot of ways to obtain or gain leverage in a safe way. And that's part of the reason why it just doesn't exist. The pendulum has swung so far to the more conservative ways to structure loans and leverage that it's just not relevant, which I think is okay, right? So for someone that participates in that way, I see it every day on how difficult it can be to get leverage. But for the markets, I think it's okay. I think it's actually a healthy process to not have a lot of huge swings in the space because of leverage. And eventually that'll come back and it'll come back over time. And maybe that provides some more liquidity. It may provide positive price movements or the other way too. But I think generally that would be positive. But for now, that's the sort of biggest change that we've seen in the microstructure of the space is the, the lack of leverage. And the market's healthy from it, I think. And it'll just continue to change over time. And But for now, I think it's a good thing. If you were given a billion dollars right now to manage, would you be able to deploy it? Yeah, I mean, we have deployed it in the past that size. We did get over a billion dollars at one point, and balance sheet was over, you know, three and a half billion. So we we feel pretty comfortable with that. It depends on the mandate, you know. So if we had the flexibility to do the three things that I described, which would be distressed and and liquid, as well as looking for practical use cases, that would certainly not be an issue. But like I said, we've been able to do it in the past. But it depends on the mandate and how focused we want to get with that type of capital, but it's certainly something we can we can handle. That's great. It's good to hear and very encouraging. And I think it'll only get better from here. It's been wonderful chatting. I think your background 
certainly lends a tremendous amount of credibility to your endeavor. And you, know, you and I have been chatting for a while now. I'm glad we're finally able to, to meet and chat a little bit more. And I know how hard you've worked to, to get to this point to position yourself. But I think the ability to do so at this stage in the market cycle, and I'm, I'm referring to crypto industry as a whole, is going to pay huge dividends because you're really able to lock in a pretty significant competitive advantage at a time where it's incredibly hard to get capital committed. There's a ton of uncertainty, but that also means that the dispersion of outcomes on a going forward basis is pretty wide. And so the option that you're sitting on is very valuable, right? And so I admire you for persisting. I must be going back to the athletic days and soccer and just your persistence and your grit and tenacity in holding through this market downturn and putting it all together. It's coming together in a nice way. So I admire that. I think you're spending the bulk of your career initially in TradFi and honing your skills and learning how to manage risk. You know, as a professional, as an asset management professional, I think also is, is incredibly valuable in how you present things and how investors ultimately will perceive your ability to take on, again, you use the word steward of capital and fiduciary. I think those are the things that are going to be front and center. And just knowing some of the larger institutions that have been lurking in the background, looking at the asset class, probably took a little bit of a cold shower in the last 12 months, but will be back. And they might actually be back just at the time where you're starting to show some real traction. So it should get pretty excited. And I'm excited for you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you taking the time and having me on. It's an honor to be here and yeah, we look forward to kind of keep pushing the boulder up the hill, taking it one step at a time and see how things play out. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Take care. All right. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.